Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Runners Only with Dom Harvey. On this episode, Sir John Kerwin. This illness takes away your self-esteem, your self-confidence and your enjoyment in life. And life's pretty shitty without those three things, Mm. right? And that's where I was living. JK needs no introduction. He's one of the greatest all-black wingers of all time, but it's his work in mental health where he's had the biggest impact, I think. He was open about his depression at a time when literally nobody talked about that stuff. I think we'd all agree there's still a lot of work about removing stigmas around poor mental health, but it is better than what it ever has been, and Sir John has had a lot to do with that. There's not too much running chat in this conversation, but there is far more important stuff. Some tips, tricks, and tools that could save lives. Oh, so I need to preempt this. Uh, We do go to some very dark places, so if any of this is triggering, please talk to someone you love and trust, or text 1737 in New Zealand anytime to speak to a trained counsellor. All right, let's get into it. Sir John James Patrick Kerwin. <laughs> How does that no sound? One's, no one's told me. Sir John James Patrick since my mum told me off. Right, is yeah, that right? She's, she's been passed for the last four years, so there you go. Right, oh, sorry to hear that. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, no, yeah. it's all good, mate. She's, and uh, um, yeah, She was 92. Oh, that was a good innings. Good innings, yeah, yeah. No. And what about your dad? Is he still here? Nah, he, he passed here? 10 years ago. Right, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, he, he had his first triple bypass when he was sort of... Um, 59. So he got through to 84, which is pretty good innings, considering the had three triple bypasses and stuff. Mm. Mind you, used to have, he used to have dripping on bread, white bread for <laughs> breakfast, you know, back in the day. Dripping, that's right. We used to use that growing up as oh, well. Good. What even was it? Just fat? Yeah, no, it's just pure fat. I yeah. used to make it on a Wednesday morning when I was a butcher. And basically, you just all the cuttings of fat, you just boil, and then all the excess meat comes to the top. You scrape that off, and then you pour it. I used to pour it into those little... Dripping things. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I'd like to like touch upon that. It's, uh, geez, it feels like we're going straight into it, but um, you touch upon your relationship with your dad because I've, I've heard some interviews that you've done and he's he, like an instrumental part of your life like in a, yeah. in a massive way. Yeah, and I think um, one, of the, one of the things that I talk about often is how the world is pushing us to think about a capitalistic form of success, Right. Um, and both my mum and dad were amazing parents and incredibly wise. But if you put them on the world stage today, you probably wouldn't give them any credit for being wise. You know, mum was was a, was a stay-at-home mum. Um, dad was a butcher. But they were amazing parents and incredibly wise. And I remember when dad was um, very, very unwell, you know, I said to him, I had very fortunate I had three days with him, and I said, Dad, what's success? And he said, how many bastards want to carry out when you die? You know, yeah, and yeah. and dad and you know when dad passed, you know like thirty people said, "Oh, can I help with dad? You know, you need any help? Can we carry him out and all that sort of stuff?" And I think that when I talk about the capitalistic world, I'm a capitalist myself, you know, but I think the world is pushing us to think about success and material gain rather than possibly being a great dad or, you know. Being a great friend, it's probably a good way of looking at it. Because I mean, there's um, there's the rare few people like you uh, who have 
done enough stuff in your life that you're going to be remembered by a broader audience, people that don't even like know you personally. But I suppose that's the thing for most people. It's the impact you have on you know, how sad other people that actually know you are going to be once you're gone. Yeah, I think um, you know, another thing Dad always said to me in the, same, in the same breath was, you know, it's no use having the flashiest car in the car park of the cemetery. Um, you know, you can't take anything with you, can you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, I was brought up a Catholic and we believe in God and, um, you know, that was a that was another interesting um, search that I had to go on when I was, you know, coming out of my illness. But I, but I think I had a life-changing event which made me look at life way differently and that was, you know, a clinical depression and wanting to jump out of a window one night. And I think if you talk to anyone who's had a a scare with health or whatever, you know, you do start to look at these things a little bit differently and you do start reassessing. And I was very fortunate that I did that at 23, mm. <laughs> you mm. know. So um, I keep get, I, I keep getting dragged back into the, the rat race. I yeah. keep having to, you know, and I think you've been through it yourself, you know, you've done a bit of a journey of discovery over the last, what, 18 months, is it? Actually, probably last last few years. Uh, I suppose there was like a bunch of stuff that I just just didn't deal with. Um, yeah, I went through a relationship breakup, went through years of like fertility treatment and IVF, and there's a bunch of stuff. And the analogy I like to use is it's like getting old gym clothes and shoving it in a bag and just leaving it there and zipping it up. And the the smell's only going to get worse and worse, and you need to address it and sooner rather than later. And then, but I think the big thing for me was um, um, a mate of mine. And he took his life in a very dramatic way. Um, I thought at that point, should if, if Daryl's capable of having that weak moment where he makes a, such a permanent decision to such a temporary problem, then, you know, we, we could all have that moment. And that was alarming for me. Yeah, I mean, I never planned my own suicide for that. Yeah. I was, felt very, very grateful. But I'd had suicidal ruminations, yeah. which was so damn scary that, you know, I used to end up shaking in bed. You mentioned before something about um, wanting to jump out of a window. What was yeah, that? Yeah, that was, that was on, the, um, on an all-black tour, actually. And I'd been hiding my mental health and my anxiety and... My anxiety fell into a depression because they're two different illnesses, and I had no understanding of either of them. Um, you know, you're probably old enough to remember One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? Yeah, the Jack Nicholson movie. Yeah, fantastic so, movie. But, but that was my reference. Man. Right, that was my reference to mental health. Um, so I thought that if I don't, uh, if I, you know, if I talk to someone, I'm going to get locked up. I'm going to get locked up with Jack Nicholson and Chief, the big American Indian guy, <laughs> and Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, and I can laugh about it. I can laugh about it now, which is which is a healthy place to be. But the reality was, um, I just did not understand what was going on in my head. And the three things I talk about with mental health that is part of the illness. And I say to people, it's an illness, not a weakness, right? And um, what happened with me was. I was ignoring the signs. I didn't know what it was. And this illness takes away your self-esteem, your self-confidence, and your enjoyment in life. And life's pretty shitty without those three things, mm. right? And that's where I was living. Um, and I had these suicidal ruminations, which used to scare me. And one night, I was in a hotel room in, in uh, Buenos Aires, the Hilton, on the 10th floor. The window was open, and I thought, I'm sick of fighting this shit. I was going to run and jump out. The guy lying next to me said, JK, you've got a good heart. Saved my life. His name was Michael Jones. Sir Michael Jones. Yeah, the Iceman. Mm, the Iceman. Um, and, and, you Has, know, have you, have, you've obviously spoken to him in the years since. Did he, have you asked him <laughs> why or yeah, why he said a, those words at that moment? Yeah, I mean. Um, Shit, I've got goosebumps, man. Just. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about Ice is a beautiful man. I saw him yesterday, actually. Um, you know, he said, well, 
God must have told me, JK. I thought, shit, not if God knows who I am, I'm all good. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, and, and he, he, he is, you know, I, I think when you, when you talk about this world and you would have met people who have an amazing EQ and other people have an amazing IQ and some have great IQ and no EQ, um, but he had amazing EQ, so I'm pretty sure he would have sensed it and, and he would have felt it and, and, um, and the timing of it was impeccable. Mm. So, so, so okay, so so you're lying, you're lying there on on your bed next to next to your teammate, and you're having these thoughts about doing something as final as that. And then he says those words that change your mind. What happens then? Do you like do you do you break down and like can spill your guts? No, to no, him, should, no, hide no. it. No, totally hide it. Um, <sighs> just got me through that moment. Carried on. Like he would have said it for no reason. I wouldn't have reacted to it. But I didn't jump out the window, but he didn't know any of that was going on. I played a test match for New Zealand the next day, scored two tries, irrelevant. It's like watching myself from the stand, like an out-of-body experience, which sounds a bit freaky, but it uh, wasn't quite that. But it was just like running just on nothing. Um, but I think it was so frightening that it made me reach out to get help. So I realised, wow, um, that was close. I need to do something about that. So that was sort of my pivotal moment. And then when I got home, you know, I did reach out and I went and saw my doctor. Um, stupid thing was the doctor had been on tour with us for five weeks, but I wouldn't talk to him about it. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read yeah. this in your book, um, All Blacks Don't Cry. So this is uh, Dr. John Mayhew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and that's another alarming thing. It's like your your mask was so good, none of your none of your teammates slash friends had any fucking clue. Well, they, all our masks are good, right? Yours was good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's just what we do. And I think part of our part of our cultural problem that we need to address, like I, I talk about living in Italy, right? So living in New Zealand, go to work in the morning. Morning, how are you? Yeah, sweet bro. Yeah, been fishing. You know, life's good. Had a great weekend. Yeah, you're good. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go to Italy and say, "Hey, man, oh, I feel like shit." You know, had a fight with Mumsy. Like it's you know, and, and it's you just more, more authentic chat. But, but you get you feel awkward as a Kiwi to start yeah, with, right? Yeah. Because we are quite superficial, mm. and that's not a that's not a criticism. That's just an observation of mine. Whereas in Italy, people will say to you that they've got words for for stuff we don't talk about, like in their common, you know, come stay, sono nervoso, like hi, how are you? Oh, I'm really nervous and anxious, you know. Mm. And people mm. say that to you straight yeah. up. And, and invariably you just go, oh, okay, what's going on? You know, can I buy you a cup of coffee or, you know. But then the next yeah. day, you, you, as a Kiwi, oh, shit, should I say hello to them? You yeah. know? And you say hello to them and they say, yeah, no, I'm all good. So so the, the whole um, keeping key emotions down, and I think there's two that, especially as males, I think um, females are way better. And I don't know whether this is, is – and it also reflects on our suicide rate. Um, we're we're – I wasn't brought up to deal with anger mm. or crying. Two fundamental emotions to be whole. Right? What do, what do you mean? Um, I, I sort of understand the crying thing. Like, because, um, yeah, I mean, the title of your book is All Blacks Don't Cry, but I think uh, yeah, New Zealand men just don't cry. It's an emotion that you um, you try and suppress, I guess. But what do, what, what, what do you mean the anger thing? Um, well, I don't know if you've been to a pub lately mm. or get to a pub around closing time. You can actually feel... Oh, the, oh, yeah, gotcha. You yeah, can feel yeah. – because anger is a mm. perfect emotion. You should never hold it down. But how you express it should be in a non-violent, positive way for anger. Yeah. Right? right. 
So once again, talking about the Italians because I understand that culture and you've just been around the world on your trips, um, you know, you, you see people arguing in Spain or in Italy and, and they, they get all this emotion out and then it's all over, mm. you know. And so I think those things, um, whereas we suppress it and it comes out at the wrong time. Mm. And anger, I, I think, you know, um, you, you were talking about your emotions, you know, when you decided to change your life a couple of years ago. And, and I talk about, you know, when you're not feeling great, your, you know, your actions aren't aligned with your values, mm. right? Yeah. And so you always feel a bit off. And so I think that what I learned during my um, depressive years was that I'm not my emotions, I'm mm. my values. And so I'm okay if I'm angry now. I just go and do something positive with it, you know, go for a walk or go and yell or listen to music, whatever mm. gets that to pass. Yeah. So one, one thing I wanted to talk to you about is, um, and uh, Dr. John Mayhew addresses this in your book, when you were at your worst, you, you were scared of not necessarily like doing something bad to yourself, like jumping out the window, but about like doing something bad to to someone else. Or do, what did he mean exactly? Like, what, uh, what was like, that? I'd watch the news and then, yeah. you know, like if you watch the news last night, there's been a shooter in the in the States or yeah. a stabbing in yeah. East South Auckland. Um, I'd be scared that that was me. I was scared that this is what this illness was. It was going to drive me to do something like that. It's so irrational, though. Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I felt like I was going insane. Um, and, but it was a real fear, and it was so scary. Like, I walked past a knife in, the, in my kitchen thinking, shit, I'm going to stab someone and stab myself, right? Um, but that was the illness, not me. I just didn't know that. And that sort of stuff would drive me to bed having an anxiety attack or too scared mm. to go out or too scared to drive or, you know. And so if I wasn't uh, ruminating about suicide, I was ruminating about being, you know, one of society's um, headlines. Was it just all-consuming? Oh, every, a minute felt like an hour, an hour felt like a day, and a day felt like a week. For how long? How long were we talking? Uh, I think probably off and on. So, like, I would, like, for example, during the 87 World Cup, I was having anxiety attacks, but they'd come and go, and, and I'd go back to normal. So I, had, I was having a good time as well. Right, so um, they'd, they'd come on for, what, like an hour, a couple of hours? Yeah, depending. Uh, starting just briefly, you know, just short ones and then sometimes an hour, sometimes half a day and then there's a hangover from it that I call fear and then, which is not uncommon, the anxiety then fell into a depression so it just didn't go away mm. and that was probably uh, two years and then it probably took me um, from 1989 to 1996 to really come out of it and get back to what I would say, you know, one of the things I was scared of was me getting myself back but I actually think I got a better version. But I was getting what, getting what you, back to what, normal. How, how do you mean? Well, you're in this altered state. Yeah. You know, you're in this freak out world, um, and it's so dominated by your illness and stuff that what you what you're trying to do is just get through every day. So, and often when I'd have these breaks from it, so I'd feel okay. I wanted myself back. I wanted to go back to what I perceived was normal. Mm. Right. Um, and the best way I could explain normal is just unconscious mind. You're just living. You're not thinking too much. You're just, you know, doing your shit and having a good time and, um, you know, not, not grabbing hold of emotions too hard and just getting on with it. That's what I wanted back. Fuck, that's a long time to be basically riding through hell. 
There's, there's mantras and mentalities like put one foot in front of the other, no storm lasts forever, the sun always comes up eventually, but six or seven years, shit. I mean, it wasn't all, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't all bad. I mean, it, it was pretty scary. I mean, I remember when I was relatively well, and this is one thing that's really difficult when you start coming out of it, you're waiting for it to come back. So you're always living with this. On the knife edge. Yeah, so. on this edge of waiting. And that's what I talk about. Um, anxiety, you know, when you have an anxiety attack, you put it into the back of your mind, into the cupboard of your mind, but it leaves a little scar, and that mm. scar is called fear. So eventually, you ended up you end up living in more and more fear, and that's what happened to me. Then I fell into depression, which is just like a full time anxiety attack, and that sort of lasted. Um, and that, when I say lasted, you're not getting any peace. Even when you're relatively well, you're thinking about it coming back. So you're just in this constant cycle. Um, and then I think once I reached out to Doc, sort of 89, so um, started getting anxiety attacks in 87. 88 had a really good year, but with anxiety attacks, so good year on the footy field. But 89 sort of fell into it. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember, I remember going to Italy and I was just crippled by it for, for a couple of weeks and then it went away, right? And then when I flew home in 89, uh, it came back. Like mm. I had a... I had a anxiety attack. I, walk, I remember um, we'd won the championship in Italy. I went to the airport, and my my girlfriend then, who um, who's now my wife, you know, we'd fallen in love. Had a I'd had a really good five months. The Italian team had won. I'd forgotten all about the first two weeks where I was really unwell. Yeah. Um, and I walked through customs, and I had this massive anxiety attack. This is in Italy, you know, with guys holding guns and shit. And I said, um, I associated my anxiety attack and my depression to New Zealand. So I turned around and went back, and I was never going to come back to New Zealand. So I turned went back through customs. Um, but everyone had gone, as you do, you know, you wave people goodbye. So there was no one there. So I went back through customs and came home. Um, and it never really left me then, probably till, till 91. I was still on antidepressants in the 91 World Cup. And then in 92, I started to really get a handle on it and started to get some confidence back and and started to ex- really, really accept it and then really work on it. Yeah. Are you, are you still on any sort of medication now or no? No, 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 no. no. I, um, well, one of the mistakes I made was that I came off my medication too quick. Um, and the way the way I put it is, you know, I've, I've got friends of mine that are on medication for all their life. Mm. I mean, you know, if I, if I say to people – in, in a room, you know, put up, put up your hand if you're taking an anti-inflammatory or a blood pressure pill or whatever. You know, it's just, it just is what it is. But I was pretty determined that I wanted to get a system in place where I didn't have to. Um, and so it took me till about 1996 um, with a couple of false starts because I think the antidepressants gave me balance to work on my illness. Yeah. And the first time I thought the pills were going to fix me and I didn't work hard enough on my mental health plan. And then the second time, you know, I, I came off them a bit slower. I had everything in, in, in place to look after myself. Yeah, because my, um, my ex, um, JJ, she's on them. And uh, she said to her doctor at one point, like, how long, how long will I be on these for? And the doctor was like, well, you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain and these sort that out. So there's nothing wrong with being on them, on them forever. Yeah, um, yeah. And look, I think, I think what, I say to, what I say to people is um, – you know, for me, I was talking about it the other day. So in the 80s, man, the beginning of the 1980s, we all smoked, eh? Mm. Have a fag and bloody few beers and no one really gave a shit. By the end of yeah. the 80s, people were sort of saying, you know, this smoking, man. Mm. 
you need to look at the health consequences and then the government gets involved. Um, and then now if you smoke, I don't judge you, you know the risks, it's your call. Um, I think mental health now is, is where smoking was in the 80s. It's mm-hmm. doing a whole lot of damage and we all need to know how to look up to our mental health. You know, And that's why I created Groove and that's why I've got Mighty, the, the charities. But you know, when you talk about the pills, what I, I had an amazing woman called Dr. Louise Armstrong who said, okay, JK, what are you going to do every single day for your mental health? Right? And so I have a daily mental health plan that I put first. And people say, why do you put it first? I say, well, I'm a better husband, better father, mm. better workmate, better, better mate. Um, so how do, how do you do that? And I think you've got to build into these, build it into your day and put it first. So right, honestly, this is your, this is your plan. So this works for you, but um, can, yeah, but like, can you share? Different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, um, what is it? Is it just like structure, structure well, and it's, routine? It's, it's a little bit of everything. So the way I talk about it is, for example, I went and saw my mum. Right, I said, Mum, I'm dead. You know, I'm dead inside. And she said, Well, the good thing about your dead son is you're still here. And she said, And you can start again. I went, hey, shit, I can start again. Because I always thought that I had to bring my past with me. Mm. And she said, no, you can, you can start. What, there's no rules in this world, boy. You can start again. And she said, you need to start by smelling the roses. And I thought about that. It's a bit of an old saying, and I thought about that on the way home. And I had nothing to look forward to. So depression and anxiety, you've got nothing to look forward to. You are just dead. Mm-hmm. And so the next morning, I had a shower. Um but for the first time in my life, I felt the water. And I actually just stood there for a minute and a half, got it really hot, and just really, really enjoyed it. And I still do that to this day. So sort of mindfulness in a way. Well, that is mindfulness, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, like people say, what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is just being in the present and enjoying the moment, mm-hmm. right? And if you had a shower this morning, you might have been thinking about, shit, what you did yesterday, you got the, the, you got this bloody podcast to do with JK, and you got those 10 other things to do, and, you know, you get on this, mm. on this journey without actually stopping. And, and so for the first time in about five years, I had something to look forward to every yeah. day, and that was my shower. So then um, habitual change is quite hard, so I started building on that, you know, and I absolutely love my coffee. So straight after I've had a shower, I now – have a workout first and then I go and have a shower and then I, I have a coffee. But I don't invite my phone. My phone's not invited, you know, and I have a coffee. Um, so, so, there's, so, that, so, for example, the six pillars are chill. What are you doing just to really relax and chill, you know? What are you doing physically? And, you know, you're, you're, you're into your running. Um, but doing is very, very important. How do you connect, right? So for me connection when someone comes into my heart I either text them or I ring them um, connection is really really important uh, one of the things about um, about mental health is you feel lonely you can be in a room with a hundred people and you feel really, really lonely so they, those solid connections are really really important right um, so so when you think about my daily mental health plan so this morning I've had a shower I've had a workout right um and I've had a cup of coffee. In fact, I had two cup of coffee. <laughs> right? But one was sitting in here with my workmates and just having a yarn. Yeah, right. right. Um, so also, I think, um, I, I talk about Auntie Betty, right? I had an Auntie Betty. She had um, purple hair and she used to nut. Used to drive us nuts. But knitting is a form of meditation. Mm. So I tried meditation and I can't meditate, right? 
I can't meditate because I've got a ruminating mind. Right. It goes really, really busy. I probably could if I spent more time at it, but I'm also very busy. So early in the piece with Dr. Louise, she said, well, you know, you've got a, you've got an active mind. So I just call my, my mind a monkey mind, you know. Mm. I call my mind Bob the monkey, right? So Bob the monkey hates reading, right? When, when I read, Bob the monkey goes into his cage, has a banana and falls asleep, <laughs> right? Um, Bob the monkey hates cooking, <laughs> Yeah. Right? Um, so every single day, and uh, during COVID, COVID was taking so much away from me that I wanted to find another thing to piss Bob the monkey off, and that was playing in the guitar. Now, it sounds like I'm killing a cat in the lounge, but after <laughs> I play for half an hour, I feel amazing. So I do the, one of those three things, and sometimes all of those three things in my day. Mm. So I know, and then I breathe as well. I do um, box breathing six or seven times a day. Right? So... If I read before I go to sleep, you know what Bob does? Goes into his cage and falls asleep. If I don't read before I sleep, you know what Bob does? Yoo-hoo! Starts thinking about all sorts of shit. You know? yeah, and he yeah. goes on this. So if you, put those, if you put those pillars into your day, and I just call them my daily mental health plan, right, then you're starting to do mindfulness. You know, you're starting to connect. You're starting to move. You're starting to do. Um, and you're starting to actually build this, this day where you're taking that time out for you. The best way I explain it is um, we're, we're animals at the end of the day. Yeah. Right? So there's, a, there's a, a zebra on the savannah desert, and out of the bush comes a lion trying to eat its ass for breakfast. They have this massive chase. The zebra gets away. What does it do? It goes back to eating grass. Mm. Right? Mm. What yeah. do we do? We're always worried about the, the lion in the bush. And what is the lion in the bush? The lion in the bush is emails that never stop. Your inbox is always full. Um, there's no work-life balance anymore. You know, yeah. you can. It, it's just life. You know, there's all this thing wars in, in in Ukraine, all these things going on in our in our world. Yeah, so much stimulus. So much stimulus, mate. And the cell phone, which is a beautiful thing, but also it can take control. I say to people, don't invite your cell phone to your coffee date. Mm. You know why? Because it'll get in the way, and you won't taste the coffee. So I think now in this modern world, technology's overtaken us. We've got all these inputs in our brain. Um, and we just need to learn some of these basic, basic um, tools for mental health. Mm. So, so do you, I feel like they are um, they're, they're good pillars and they're good things. And I feel like um, I'll, I'll grab something for you very okay. quickly. So you, can, you can download this free, mate, in, in the um, in the Groove app. But the thing, and in, in the, we're on a podcast, so you people can't see it. But what I like, what I like to do is show. So this is this is all based in in medical science. If you do these things every single day then you'll, you will be better. But what I didn't realise back in the day was that my psychiatrist was building me to do, start doing these things, right? And if you turn it over, that's mine. Translated into what I do every single day, right. right? Cafe, shower, read, breathe, tell people I love them, guitar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I do that religiously. And so it can be anything. You, 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 mm. know, you, you love your running, right? Yeah, your yeah. running for you might be fundamental part of your move. And the other thing I say to people is we're busy. Two birds with one stone, mm. right? So, Oh, yeah, 100%. We're always multitasking. Yeah, exactly. But you can do that for your mental health. So, yeah. for example, I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a dog a little bit bigger than yours. Yours is really small, so is mine. Um, but I take it with a walk, mm. for a walk with my wife because that's the only time we can connect, right? So I'm doing my move, right? I'm doing something physical, but I'm also connecting with my wife, mm. and the dog's happy. You can do those things in our days because we need to. You know? mm. When um, 
When, when, what year did you and your wife meet, and has she been helpful in you being more open and expressive? Oh, like, totally. Yeah, really. Yeah, totally, what, what, did, did you totally. suffer um, like mental health stuff before you met her, or? Um, no, it was sort of uh, for me. It was like um, I met her, so I got to Italy. I had that three weeks I was talking about, it, and then I met her in this really beautiful period of my life. Mm-hmm. So I'd forgotten about the three weeks of anxiety and that I'd had. Um, and then I started playing really well for yeah. me. I met my wife. You know, I'm living in northern Italy, going on dates to Venice, like just, you know, really cool time. Um, then then the, probably the next two years for us were really rough. I got really unwell. Um, I was drinking too much. She doesn't agree with drinking. Um, culturally very, very different. Yeah. You know, came down to New Zealand didn't like it to start with, you know. I'm playing footy, all sorts of different stuff going on. So we had a pretty, we had a pretty um, rough time of, early on. Yeah, you know, just early on, just yeah. just me having to change and her having to, both of us having to change. And so, um, but then she was amazing um, around my mental health because she just thought it was normal, mm. whereas I thought it was this massive thing in my life, which it was. But she just thought it was normal, so she was really good at accepting it and and helping me with emotions. You know, I'm, I'm I still I, I'm still working on how good they are at at being emotional. Yeah. Italians, you know, like they can she can fly off her nut, you know, and be mm. angry, and then in two seconds later she's trying to give you a kiss. Yeah, well, I, I went to um, Argentina a few years ago, and I was surprised that um, this, um, this English-speaking tour guide I spoke to, he, he said that most people over there have a therapist, and it's just something they do. So, like, therapists over there are like personal trainers here, and people just go because they like to gesticulate and vent, and, but it's just not a, not a Kiwi way, is it? It's like, if you hear someone's going to therapy, it's like, oh, shit, is everything okay? Yeah, and that needs to change. Yeah. Right? I, 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 uh, I talk about a mate of mine who came around, and, um, you know, we're talking footy, talking code. You know, talking code, and uh, he goes, "Oh, bloody, you know, stuffed my knee at touch the other night." And I'm going, "Oh, yeah, well, we're playing the over forty, so who gives a shit?" <laughs> it's, not, you know, it's not as if you're out yeah, yeah. out with COVID for the All Blacks, mate. Yeah, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, like, exactly. no, no one really cares. Um, but anyway, we, we were talking away, and he said, "Oh, but that's not what I'm here for, bro. You know, I think I've got a case of the JKs." And I said, "Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he didn't say that, though, did he?" Yeah, did he? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I go, okay, okay, so what have you done for your knee? And he said, well, you know, it swelled up the next day. I went to the doctor. The doctor gave me some anti-inflammatory. She said, oh, you better go and see, you know, a specialist. And I went to see a specialist. And, and you know, the specialist actually is the specialist that saw Sonny Bill Williams. I said, well, ask him to put some pace and maybe some abs back in when you get operated on. You know, we're just having a good old boy's yarn, taking the fist out of each other. Um and then he said, and what the what the doc said to me is, actually do rehab before I op. I'm going to get operated in three weeks, and then it's probably going to be a you know a three to six months recovery, and I'll be back for touch next summer. I said, oh cool, no one really gives a shit about being back for touch, but, but, it's, but it's all good, you know what I mean? Um, and I said, what have you done for your brain? And he went, oh, I've come to see you, and I said, yeah, I'm a butcher. You know, mm. I can help you, and I'm happy to sit here and tell you what I did. But look what you did for your knee. Mm. You should do that for your brain. Yeah. You know, some of the greatest life lessons I've learned have been off psychologists and psychiatrists, just about understanding the old nut, mate. Mm. You know? Um, so if we do it for our physical body, I, I, I'll say to you, mate, you got a flu for three days, right? What do you do? 
you whack, you go down to local chemist and whatever's on TV, <laughs> viral axe, whatever, whatever that yeah, is, yeah, right? Yeah. And then after three days, if it hasn't come <laughs> right, you go to the doctor. Yeah, yeah. And he says, oh, you've, well, at the moment, you know, we can't talk about the flu because everyone does a COVID test. But you know what I mean? Mm. We take our, we've got to take our mental health like we do our physical health. Yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, this um, since um, I launched this podcast in uh, like February, um, your mental health is something that I've I've talked about a lot, and I've um, I feel like I've got a lot of undeserved and unnecessary um, DMs and kudos for people saying, hey, it's good that you're talking about this stuff. Um, but I, I feel like the, yeah, there's like physical health and mental health. You sh- one shouldn't be ex- excluded like the other one isn't. But well, uh, I don't know if you noticed, Don, but you, your head is attached to your body. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. By, yeah. by the neck, right? Yeah. And, and, and so everyone has mental health, right? And mine came out mentally. I know people that it comes out physically. Um you How know, do you mean? How do you mean? Well, they just get aches and stomach aches and caused by stress and yeah, and, yeah. and chest pain, and they go to the doctor and the doctor says nothing. I mean, I've I've had I've had people that go to the hospital with a heart attack and it's anxiety. Mm, yeah, right. So stress and anxiety, mate, is accumulative. If you don't get rid of it today, you're going to accumulate it for tomorrow. And you know, you you, I, I presume you've changed your life in the last couple of years, but you had this incredibly busy life, mm. right? And I'll take you back to when you were 23. You know, you finished whatever your studies was and you start your new job, Christmas holidays come around, right? By the time you get to the car park, you're on holiday, man. You've forgotten about work. By the mm. time you get to your real holiday the next day, it feels like you've been on holiday for a week. You get three weeks off, feels like three months. <laughs> what was the last time you went on holiday? How long did it take you to disconnect from yeah, your phone? Yeah. How long did it take you not to feel guilty about answering emails? How long does it take you to stop your brain and just let your brain wander? Mm. You know, like you pick up your phone because you're so, your brain's so full of shit now that you don't even know how to just wander and mm. think and create. Yeah. And, and and so if you don't get rid of your stress and anxiety every day, you're not going to be able to recover on the weekends, you know? Mm. So it's really, really important that we look at our mental health like we do our physical health. Mm. I feel like the, um, the conversation has come such a long way and – the work that you've done on that is just phenomenal. Like you, you were the you were the trailblazer. Like you were the Edmund Hillary and this stuff. Why? What? What year did you come out and talk about mental health first of all? And and why did you decide to do it publicly when the easy thing to do, not the right thing to do, but the easy thing to do, would just be to keep it to yourself and keep it to your family and keep it to Dr. John. Um, so I think I've been the face of this for fifteen years. Feels like it's been longer than that, though. Yeah, yeah, it feels longer than that. It does too. Um, and back back to my mum. So 
uh, I didn't want to do it. I thought I'm going to ruin my reputation. I'm going to ruin everything I've worked hard for. Um, people will see me as um, a leper in the society, not good enough, not 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 being able to handle the pressure. Because this is what you go through when you're in this hell. You know, you think you think it's you rather than the illness. And my mum said, "How bad was it in there?" <laughs> I said, "Mum, was hell on earth. Like I would not wish it on anyone." In there, as and in your in your head when you're going when through. When I was in depression, yeah, right, right, right. hell. And she said, well, if you could help one person not to live that hell, would it be worth it? And I said, yes. And she said, well, there's your answer. So I've always done it for one person, whoever, A, I can help, and B, I just keep telling the story because, um, you know, and I'm so pleased that you're sitting here in front of me because you are now picking up the baton and you're talking about it and you might not have... Um, the same experience as me, but it doesn't matter. Everyone's got their own mm. mental health journey. And whether it's, you know, you going through your breakup or, you know, being a celebrity or whatever that journey was for you, everyone has their own mental health and everyone has their own points where we're, we're pushing, right? So, you know, talked about bipolar before. And the stats in our country are 4% of people are born with some sort of mental health issue, schizophrenia, bipolar, some sort of, um, some sort of personality disorder. And we should be spending as much money as we can and getting them as early as we can because I do believe the future of those illnesses will be turned around like all other illnesses. Mm. 4% of the population never suffer. But the 92% of us, you and me and everyone else in this world, we get pushed up and down that spectrum, right? So what happened to me was I was an anxiety-based person that didn't deal with his anxiety and I got pushed off the cliff. We've got to stop pushing people off the cliff. Mm. We've got to put a fence at the top of the cliff and move that. Um, move that back. Shit, you must be so proud of the stuff you've done in this realm. Like, not, not at all, mate. Right? No, no, no. I mean, How I, can you not be? How can you say that? Um, because mental health taught me to live by the day. So can you change yesterday? No. Can you tell me what's going to happen tomorrow? No, no. No, exactly, right. So um, I woke up five years ago and felt an absolute failure. And I felt a failure. Now, don't get me wrong. Um Failure used to be a big shark of mine, and it used to scare the shit out of me and make me swim very fast, as sharks does. But unfortunately, sharks always catch you. And failure was one of my big sharks. But now I love failure. It's one of the greatest teachers That's in where the, the world. Bigger, yeah, the biggest lessons are learned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I embrace it. So I woke up five years ago, and two things happened to me. I looked at the newspaper, and our suicide rates are going the wrong way. So by the end of this evening... Um, one person will be dead by tomorrow evening. Three people will be dead, two males and one female, three human lives. Um, so I felt like I'd failed. And then I get really, really upset with um, people sort of talking about this issue and nothing really changing. Yeah. So our stats aren't. 800,000 people committed suicide last year. In Australia, 120 attempts, eight deaths a day. So I'd failed. I might have raised the awareness, but we needed to look at things differently. And so I decided to look at things very differently five years ago and created a foundation which has um, – I facilitated for a year and we created a, a mental health uh, curriculum for primary schools. And the first, the first thing we, we spoke about was, well, we should put it in secondary schools because the kids need it now. 
at secondary school, but actually they need to learn the tools by the time they get to secondary school. Yeah, the old prevention's better than a yeah, cure. Exactly. Yeah. And then the other thing, the other thing that I did was um, depression.org.nz 12 years ago, which we created with the New Zealand government, was one of the most successful online mental health tools in the world. So it won all these amazing awards. And this is no one's fault, but for the last 12 years, no one's spent any money on the technology. Mm. Kept and I gave my image to the government for nothing. I was proud to do so. Driving people to the site, that was then starting to get clunky. So very lucky I met my, my business partner, Adam Clark, who, who's been absolutely amazing. And, and my dream was to create a world-class, world-changing digital platform that people could teach and learn and understand their mental health. And what we wanted to do was do that through businesses because we didn't want the end user to pay. Right? Mm. Um, I had a few false starts, and then I went to him and I said, okay, I want to reach 2,456,000 people, because that's the working force of New Zealand. Um, and he said, JK, this is a worldwide problem. We should reach 100 million people and save 100,000 lives. Because I firmly believe that the future is everybody understanding their mental health and then having the tools and techniques that they need every single day to deal with what the world throws at them. So that's my journey at the moment. But I don't, I don't look back and I don't look forward. All I do is, I, and this was because I wanted to jump out of a window one night. Mm. All I want to be is the best me today. Mm. And I break those things into four things. Uh, I want to be a great dad. I want to be a great husband. I want to be really good at whatever I'm doing. And the last thing is I want to be very spiritual. And that's another story because I had some issues with God but I want to make sure that I'm looking after my spirituality and, and my mental health is the foundation yeah, for right. me, those things, right? Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about the, um, the religion stuff? Because you touched upon that early, early in this, uh, this conversation and you just brought it up again now. So you were raised religious? Yeah, yeah I was uh, raised a Catholic. Oh, Catholic same. School. Yeah, there you go. So you've got the guilt shark as well. <laughs> Have you got a guilt shark? Most of us. Oh, 100%. Right? 100%. God, every, every time, um, yeah, growing up, if, um, if, if, if I did something wrong or one of my brothers did something wrong and we went to snitch to mum or dad, it'll be, always be like, don't worry, God will punish them. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> or if you do that, that's going to happen. So we feel guilty about it. So much Catholic guilt. Yeah, yeah. So you're an atheist now? No, 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 no not at all. All. I um, well, it's a really interesting story. So um, I got told all my life, as you would have, that if I'm in trouble and I need God and I pray, He'd be there for me. I wanted to jump out a window. I prayed and He wasn't there. So I was pretty dark on Him for a long time. And then I went and actually did a prenuptial wedding thing with my wife, right? And I said, I'm not doing it. She said, It's six week course. I said, I'm not doing it. Like, are you kidding me? But anyway, um, I got her down to three days. Only argument of her one. So that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty Pick your battles. Good, pretty damn good. Pick anyway. your battles. Yeah. But anyway, um, I walked in and I just told this priest. I just said to him, Man, this is what happened. Pretty out with God. And he said to me, How was your family when you told them? I said, Oh, they were awesome, you know. They showed me a lot of love. And he said, oh, okay. And he said, what about your mates? And I said, well, my mates were really pissed off that I hadn't told them about my depression and stuff. Mm. But when I told them, they were amazing. I said, they showed you a lot of love, eh? And then and he said, well, what about your wife-to-be? How was she? I said, oh, so patient, amazing. Mm. Oh, she showed you a lot of love, eh? And I said, yeah. And he said, mate, God is love. And that really gave me peace because then I decided that if I show more love, as much love as I can to as many people as I can, then I will be a spiritually 
okay. Mm. And then if I do get to heaven and Izzy up there, I'm pretty sure he's going to let me in anyway. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll be yeah. at the gate. Hey, Dom, how are you, mate? You in here yet? Nah, I'm in here, mate. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, all the shit yeah. we got, all the shit we got brought up to believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you're a, and this is this is this led me to thinking about you know, um, you know, you, you see lots of other religions. But at the end of the day, if you as a person are going to show your community and those around you as much love as you can, then I think spiritually you're in a really good space. Yeah. But giving love takes a bit of time and takes a bit of effort, you know? Yeah. It takes work on to be able to give back to your community, to be able to give to those around you time especially, mm. right? Um, the world is taking time away from us. And so a lot of the love that you can show to something, you need to plan and make sure you're doing it properly. Yeah. So you mentioned before the, um, the, the priest or spiritual leader asking you like how your friends were when they found out about your depression. I just want to touch upon this for a second. So I think it's Grant Fox in your book. He, he talks about how he had no idea sort of thing. Should it have been, in hindsight, you chose to keep it to yourself and um, probably seemed like the right thing to do. In hindsight, should you, should you have told your friends that were close to you in the team? Or totally. should, should it have been up to them to... No, no, no. Why totally. should the onus be on you when you were the sick one? Because you can't see it. If I walked in limping today, you'd say, oh, it's okay, what's wrong with your knee? Mm. Can't see it. Yeah. And so people don't know. And as we mentioned before, we faked, I faked it. So I'm living in this hell, but I could still sit down and do an interview or I could go and play a game of rugby, right? So I say this, it is your health. So you share it with whoever you feel comfortable with. So I've shared mine with the world, but you share it with people who love you and care for you. And you might lose a couple of people around it, right? But those are the decisions that you need to make. And so your mental health is to do what you want to do with it. But keeping it to yourself and not telling people is not the answer. Mm. The answer is, you know, if you don't want to tell your friends, you've got to tell your family. Or if it's not your family, you've got to tell a psychiatrist, a psychologist, you've got to get help, right? Mm. So... The most important thing is you share it with those who you trust because then it's half the load. You know, when I started sharing, I mean, to help people say, oh, yeah, that person's been there through that, that person, you know, and you start building a community which makes you feel way more normal. Mm. Yeah, because did you find as soon as you came clean about it, a whole lot of people came to you that had exactly the same feelings? Yeah, I think um, I think the honesty that mm. it creates in a relationship is really healthy. Yeah. And I think especially for males, because often I have some beautiful relationships with some really close friends, and it's not superficial, which I, I also love our superficial part of our relationship because <laughs> we're probably males, you know. We love the, the banter and taking yeah. the piss and that, which I really enjoy. But I've got some really beautiful relationships where my friends tell me they're not too good, you know. And I think that's that's cool. And I have relationships where if you see me and I know you and you ask me how I am, I'm going to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and some days I'll say, mate, who did I say to you yesterday? Very, very difficult to find someone better than me at the moment because I'm on fire. Mm-hmm. But then I will tell you, I'm a bit flat, I'm a bit anxious or whatever. So some, some days you just wake up feeling shit for no reason. Um, I normally so so one of the one of the things that we talk about and I talk about and and being in your groove right so when I'm in my groove how do my how do mm. I feel and feel being in your groove is actually feeling good and functioning well right so when I'm in my groove everything's going good at home um, I'm really creative I'm really optimistic I love the little things in life like I laugh at some stupid stuff you know um, which is which is really really cool. So when I'm feeling like that, I know that I'm in my groove. But I also talk about my AAA battery, right? So when my battery's low, 
I do three things, which I didn't do for a long, long time, which is really important. So my triple A, a battery is be aware, acknowledge, and then act. So when I'm feeling flat, sometimes I'll go, okay, I'm feeling flat, so I'm aware. I'll acknowledge why. So three weeks ago, I was really anxious, not feeling great. It was a Monday. And then when I had a look at my life, I thought, you've been breaking some of your own rules, JK. You know, you haven't had a day off. You've been doing this, doing that. You know, you've, you've probably been drinking a bit too much. Like, you're breaking your own rules. So aware, then I acknowledged it, and then I acted on it. And I, and I said, right, I took a day out of my week, cancelled some stuff, um, and went to the beach for three days and just really reassessed where I was. Sometimes I just feel flat, mm. and I might be tired, might not have slept well, might have had too much coffee yesterday. Those things are just life. But if I feel myself getting anxious and some of my sharks returning, then I then I take a bit of a AAA battery look at it and reassess very quickly. Mm. So I don't let that go. Unfortunately, I find a lot of people just carry on. Mm. You know, charge on through, charge on soldier through. on, we'll be yeah. a soldier on, man. You know, we'll be, you know, and I just think that's really unhealthy. So the sharks are still there, but you know when they're getting close. Yeah, see. no, I mean it's 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 an interesting story. It's another story about um, Dr. Louise Armstrong. So when early in the piece. When I accepted my illness, she said, okay, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be great at it. And look, I love being blissfully average. Oh, blissfully shut average. up. What do you mean? Yeah, what, so have, I, what, what the hell have you ever been blissfully average at? I'm blissfully guitar. average. It's guitar <laughs> and surfing. Right? And I think it's okay. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, um, you know, I just did a marathon. Cool. You know, it took them for whatever. Mm. And and they said I was blissfully average. Yeah. And that's okay in some of the things in your life. Yes. Right? And so I, I went to her and I was unwell and she said, how would you le- like to learn how to um, do self-hypnosis? Man, this is the 80s, bro. Like, if you did yoga, you're a dope-smoking hippie, you know what I mean? So the, none of this bloody alternative shit back then. Especially one of the stars of the All Blacks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is kooky. Exactly, yeah. mate. Yoga, you're kidding yourself, you hippie. But anyway, I, I, I went and did it, and she said, what do you love doing? And I said, I love surfing. She said, okay, well, in your mind, I put on board shorts, ran down the beach, felt the water, paddled out, two to three foot perfection, surfed really well. And then when she brought me out of it, depression and anxiety often was this heaviness on my head, mm-hmm. this cloud, and... That was gone. So I went home and said to my wife, I'm going to do this. So I go upstairs a bit early, do the same, you know, do the breathing, put the butchers on, run down, feel the water, feels great, paddle out. This fear circling me that felt like sharks mm-hmm. in my mind. So I called them my sharks. The only way I could explain back to the psychiatrist was yes. there were sharks in my water. She said, JK, right. they're your sharks. Um, you have to get them smaller, get the teeth out of them, mm-hmm. and get them out of your mind. And so my first shark was a dumb shark. I felt dumb. Now, this took a while, by the way. So I go home thinking, sharks, my sharks, what is this shit about? Okay, what's really what's really driving some of this behavior? Yeah, my first one was a dumb shark. You know, I left school at 15, never passed an exam in my life, got told I was dumb. Um, you know, my mates told me I was dumb. My teachers told me I was dumb. And so I felt dumb. Were you dumb or just school, just school dumb? Yeah, well, you... that's right. And But I felt I was dumb. Right, right. Because... Um, society tells you if you're intelligent, you pass these exams. Okay. Right? I never pass one, so I'm dumb. And um, that was my shark. Mm. So what I did is I thought, okay, I'm going to address this. I went back into the education system that let me down or I let it down um, and failed again. <laughs> right? But what I, what I do do now is I'm not 
educated, mm. but I'm not dumb, right? But it was a big shark. You know, then I had a guilt shark. I had an imposter syndrome shark. Um, you know, and so I slowly dealt with those with those sharks. Mm. And now when I'm getting unwell, my sharks come back. Right. So they start, when I start feeling, what are you doing, JK? What are you talking to Dom? What are you doing a podcast for, you idiot? Like, you dummy. Like, you know, I know that I'm... And it doesn't happen much at all. Yeah, right. So you, um, there's no reason for you ever to get um, really sick again because you're you're that self aware. You've done that much work, so you know when when things are creeping up on you. Uh, yeah, I'm not worried about it. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I've taken the fear out of I've taken the fear out of anxiety. Mm. I still have the odd anxiety attack, you know. Mm. But instead of lasting a day, it lasts like ten seconds. You know, I had one the other night. I got a bit of you know ringing in my ears. So I'm actually going to see a specialist today. You know. And the other night I was lying in bed and my ears are ringing and I'm going, I started to get anxious about having to live with this. This could drive me insane. Yeah, yeah. But then I just went, don't be silly, JK. You just mm. need to um, accept it and listen. Because what I learned with my anxiety, the more I pushed it away, the more it had come forcing back into it instead of actually accepting it and sitting it on my knee. So what I did the other night was just a couple of my techniques. I just sat with it and just thought, it's going to be fine because if you sit with it, then you stop hearing it. And so. Mm. Um, but I was really anxious for a little while. My, the, the, the lockdown and COVID last year, I just wasn't ready for it for some dumb reason. Yeah. And I didn't have my support next to me, and I was really, really anxious mm. for three days until I went back to my battery. Yeah. Why are you anxious? What do you need to do? Put the safety nets in place. Jeez, that's some good takeaways. I think that's the things that anyone can implement, right? Yeah, of course you can, yeah. because it, it's it's just a daily mental health plan, mm. like... You know, um, I did some cognitive behaviour therapy and I was talking to Adam, one of my best mates the other day about it, about being anxious about my, the ringing in my ears. But what happened was, um, I just call it rewiring your brain. My, my brain took over saying, JK, breathe. If you accept this, you'll be fine. Go, you've, mm-hmm. you've booked a specialist, just relax and yeah. read a book. And that's what I did. So that, that's, a, that's a series of things that you can do when you're, when you're anxious that I had to learn. Can we can we talk about a couple of your sharks that you mentioned? Um, first of all, um, the imposter syndrome shark, because oh, that's that's something I've had as well. And I I was on a podcast about a month ago that you've been on as well called Between Two Beers, and they, they asked me about it. And the way I sort of explained it to them is like through through my through my radio career, I said that there'd be peaks where it would go away, like I'd I'd win an award and it would go away, or someone would try and poach me and I'd get a big pay rise and it would go away temporarily. Like I'd have these like spike validations and it would go away. But in some ways, I, I look back on my uh, 30-odd years in radio, and I think it, maybe it was like helpful in a way because it just made me like swim harder because I mm. felt like I needed to to keep up. Was that the same with you in rugby? Oh, totally. I mean, and it's really interesting because a lot of successful people have an imposter syndrome. And like I say, um, if you want to win an Olympic race swimming, get chased by a shark. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to... Get that record time. But the shark is going to eat you. The shark is going to win that race, right? You know what I'm saying? So the the trouble is with giving up my imposter shark was it made me who I was. It made me. Made you that good. Totally. Yeah. Because I'm coming off the field thinking I'm going to get dropped on Monday, right? I'm not good enough. When are they going to find out I'm not good enough? When are they going to find out I'm just lucky? But the trouble is that often our brain will lie to us. You were amazing on radio because – you had a talent for it. You did the hard work, right? Whatever that three or four things were. Mm. But you don't listen to that all the time. You go, shit. But then you get addicted to the shark. 
because it actually drives you because you've won yeah. that award and then a week later you think, ah, fuck, you know. Not getting I'm not good enough. I'm not yeah. any good anymore, yeah. and, I'm, and you just keep driving. Yeah, and and I think the hardest thing when you're imposter syndrome is part of your success is really identifying why you've been successful mm. and really embracing that. And part of that for me was I, I I talk about my sister rings me and says, "G'day, little bro. How is it? Fantastic. How are you? Great. Why are you so good? I've just looked in the mirror." Oh, you vain, buddy, you know, just the government. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a part in imposter yeah. syndrome that we actually never good enough mm. and we don't actually love ourselves mm. and look at the achievement that we've done. What happens is you get addicted to the imposter because that's driving you to, to keep getting better. Yeah. So how do you replace that? And I think that was one of the biggest things. How do I replace the shark um, but keep getting motivated and keep, driving and, and you're probably doing that now mm. you know you've given it all away and you've got this new motivation and you're finding other things that make you want to be the best that you can be every single day mm. and I think once you flick that and once you get rid of the shark you you keep that same things that's made you who you are mm. and what you're great at but you get rid of some of that yeah. stress that comes with it that 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 running that chasing and it's really mm. interesting you talk about um, drinking you know I say to people uh, and drinking's not my problem. Stopping is. Exactly. I think I'm like you. I, I, I love my wines. I too. Reds in particular. But if, are you? Have you got a healthy relationship with alcohol now? Like, can you drink like an Italian, as in like, have two with dinner and then have finish with a with a coffee? Um, I'm, that's my challenge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I, first time I went to Europe, it's like um, you have two over dinner and then yeah. the, the, the waiter would say, "Do you want a coffee?" And I'm like, "No, no, no." I have another, yeah, yeah. Another keep wine. pouring. Yeah. <laughs> I remember having a party in my Italian house one night. And the first night, a whole lot of Kiwi mates came to visit. And um, my father-in-law came up the next day to me and said to me, Oh, I'm sorry, what, what, what went wrong? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, was the wine off? And I said, why? He said, there's 36 bottles outside. And there was 10 of us at dinner. <laughs> uh, and um, Just the right amount. <laughs> yeah. And the next night, I had 10 Italians for dinner, and there was five bottles outside. Mm. But also, I think I'm pouring. Like you come to my place, mate. I'm pouring you wine. In Italy, you pour your own wine, right? Right. But I'm. I don't want you Topping not to have a wine. Yeah. So my relationship with with alcohol. I have a wine company, wine importing business. I love my wine, and my goal is to actually, you know, enjoy it for what it is. And I, um, I have some triggers now that I try and listen to. Um, but also, I was brought up as a binge drinking Kiwi, mm. so it's still associated with relaxing and having a good time, which is wrong. But you know that's the that's the culture I was brought up in, and so it is a challenge for me. Yeah. Now, can we talk about the um, the other shark that you mentioned, the dumb shark, and then <laughs> and then maybe we'll, we'll get into some fun stuff before we finish. Sweet because yeah. I, know, I know I know you say yesterday is in the past, but. Um, it's been, I mean, it's been a hell of a life. Like we're focused on the mental health stuff, but a, a lot of younger people, I guess, listening to this won't have an idea of just what a phenomenal career you have. <laughs> so, um, you I'm talk, too old for the young you, people to know. Who absolutely I'm. not. It lives on YouTube forever. So, um, the dumb shark. So you left school at 15 and you, you worked with your dad yep. as a, a, a butchery apprentice. Um, was that a big call? Uh, I'm guessing you were like a, a talented or promising rugby player. No, you, not, not really. Not really. No, I was I was half back at school. Yeah, uh, made the first fifteen. You know, I, I played all sports. Like you know, I loved all sports. I only went to school to eat my lunch and play sports. So that was about it, really. 
Um, so yeah, I made the first 15 as a halfback and then, you know, school just wasn't for me, obviously. And so it was either, you know, I was going to go and get a trade. It was either be a butcher or, or be a builder. And I just decided to follow in dad's footsteps. So became an apprentice butcher. Yeah. Did, did your parents, I don't know if you've had this chat with them, but did they ever sort of think, oh, okay, he'll do the butchery thing and rugby was still amateur then, but you'd still keep playing rugby and you'd keep excelling at that? Or Yeah, well, I think, no, not at all. So I went to Marist, um, you know, just went into the fifth grade and, um, you know, I changed from um, Pete Snedden, who was my coach at the time. He changed me from halfback to wing. He said, I think you'd be a really good winger. And so in the fifth grade, he changed me to the wing wow. and I really enjoyed it. And... I had no ambitions. Rugby was amateur. Rugby was something that you did um, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, right? And yeah, even, even at the top level, we're talking about then. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I was very lucky. I made the Auckland team when I was eighteen, um, and we trained for Marist on Tuesday and Thursday, and then you played for you trained for Auckland on Monday, Wednesday. So, and then we played on, so, I mean, I played a test match, one of my first test matches against France and came home and played for Marist on Sunday at uh, Eden wow. Park number three. So we were totally amateurs. I mean, I, I, I was not paid to pay, I was never a professional rugby player in New Zealand, ever. I got, first got paid at the age of 29 when I went to the Warriors. Right. And then yeah, I got yeah. paid for my last three years in Japan as a professional rugby player. What did you get through your All Black years? Were you, did you get like like per diems, like a daily allowance? Yeah, we had, or? so I was players committee um, towards the end of my career. So when I started, it was $15 a day and pay for your laundry. <laughs> um, I'm by, guessing there was shit money even back then. By the, yeah, the, shit yeah, money yeah, back then. Yeah. And by the time I finished, it was $55 a day. And we were all trying to make money. You know, the game was unsustainable in its current state if you wanted to be best in the world. So by the end, you know, 94 when I finished, rugby went professional in 95, you know, we were we were getting money from Lion Nathan or DB or whoever we could. And so the game needed to go pro. So I'd go to Italy, um, 1989, you know, I made $60,000 and uh, that might not sound a lot of, like a lot of money to a lot of people, but you could buy a house in Mount Albert for 85. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Exactly, and that was totally illegal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Craig Green and I, we often laugh about this. He's over there. I'm catching up with him shortly, my old mate. He's still in Italy. He went over after the World Cup in 87 and 88. Um, and, you know, we'd drive across the Swiss border and put money in a bank account there. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'd send it to London and send it home. And if, if you declared it with the, with the government, you were fine. But if rugby found out, you'd be banned from the game. Right. So we had to Wow, keep, you just weren't allowed to earn it all. No, no, we had to keep all that money yeah. um, secret. And one of the greatest things I did after 89 is I brought I brought um, my beach house or my beach property with that money because you had to spend it straight away, mm. <laughs> you know. So the, the 1987 World Cup, I, re, I, was, I was never a rugby player or anything, but I was 14 years old at the time, and you were as big a, as big a star as what you could get, especially after this try you scored against Italy. Where you ran the length of the field, you must have got some like some some money, some commercial opportunities after that, some TV ads. Um, yeah, so it it um, it was a really interesting time because it was still amateur, so we weren't allowed to accept the money. Um, so it was all black money, but right. yeah. Um, but I, you know, Andy Hayden, uh, may he rest in peace. He was sort of the the pioneer on how to route the system. <laughs> of course, he was, <laughs> and make sure you got your money. Um, so I think. Um, more so than 87, in 86, the Cavaliers Tour, which I did not go on, um, 
was... Yeah, so that was to um, apartheid South Africa, and yeah. yourself and um, David Kirk exactly. did not go. did not go. No, we did not go. Um, what was so for anyone for anyone that can't remember that or has vague memories of it? What was the what was the what was the controversy about it, and why did you decide not to go? Uh, it was the the controversy is pretty easy because South Africa was apartheid. Yeah, and um, the All Black tour, official All Black tour that I was available for because it was official, had been cancelled. Um, and so there was a Cavaliers tour um, organised, and you know I, I decided that. I wasn't going to go if it wasn't an official. So the players that went, was it like so greed driven? Not really. Oh. I, I think it's everyone has their own political yeah. agenda, and I, God or whoever you believe in, will do judgment at the end of the day. So some people might have gone for the money. There was a decent amount of money involved back in those days, but some people didn't think that sports and politics should mix. And so it was probably the worst time of my life. To be fair, um, I had to grow up pretty quick. Um, I had to stand up in front of my peers and tell them I wasn't going. And to be fair to every single one of them, they were pretty good yeah. about it. Um, so for me, it was a it was a pretty traumatic time. But off the back of that, the country was in real bad shape from a rugby point of view. The country was divided. Um, the Cavaliers tour, people, you know, it was the first time it stopped being our national game and people started thinking, stuff this. So um, really difficult time, but then... I actually started getting some TV ads and started to make a bit of money outside the game, right? Which, which really motivated me to try and continue to be the best that I could be. So back then, no, no one was professional, and I decided to get a personal trainer when they went trendy, and I decided that um, I never, I, like you talk about um, imposter shark, I never thought I was good enough. Mm. So I, I thought, how can I be better than everyone else if I'm not good enough? And I thought that was through training, being as fit as I could, and just being an extra level from a physical point of view. And so that's that's what I that's what I did in 1986, and then 87 came around, and I was probably in the best form of my life with that combination. You know, I'd, I'd matured enough at the Test Arena, I'd been going and training and getting physically fit. My my really good mate Pete Young Hori, who was my Marist trainer, became my personal trainer. Came around at six a.m. get me out of bed. We did some really interesting training through the trees, um, and it was just a it was just a really special rugby time in my mm. life. Yeah, the through the trees thing. Like I wanted to talk about that because the, the the name of this podcast is called Runners Only, believe it or not, and we haven't mentioned running at all. That try that I referenced just a second ago in the nineteen eighty seven World Cup, where you. Basically, ran the length of the field through the Italian team. How many? How many players did you pass? Like eight? I don't know. Nine? I, I don't know. I keep telling people I paid them. They're all my mates, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still paying. But it was, like be... a, it was like a length of the field try. But you you like trained for that moment by running through like a, a forest or something. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the, if you go through Twinac Drive, if you're driving through Twinac, Twinac Drive from the Onyanga end um, to the Epsom end, if you go into the trees to your left, you'll find a row of trees that has three trees and then a gap and then another four trees. And so I ran through that. Uh, so my dad, once again, I was driving to work one morning and he said, uh, I said to him, Dad, I can't step and keep my pace. And he goes, oh, okay, that's interesting. And he said, um, oh, okay. So the next day he said, in the car, he said, uh, you want to fix that step problem? I said, yeah. He said, prepared to pay the price? I went, oh, yeah, Okay. So about a week later, he said to me on Wednesday morning, which was sausage morning, which was a very difficult day if you're an apprentice butcher, so you make a couple of hundred kilos of sausages. Um, he said, take your boots. So I take my boots, and after lunch, Neville Denton comes in, who was a mate of my dad's, and, 
and um, they're standing there and they're talking as if I'm not there. And Neville says to Dad, oh, is this the boy? Yeah, yeah. Not much good, eh? Dad goes, nah. <laughs> God, I love your dad. Yeah, yeah. Um, can't step and keep his pace. Nah, not very good at that. Oh, okay. He's prepared to pay the price. <laughs> yeah. And I'm standing there like, what is I'm, the just price? Part, yeah, I'm just part of this conversation. But anyway, he takes me up. I do four 400s, then he takes me through the trees, and I can't do it. I cannot do it, mate. I step, hit a tree, like, disgraceful. Anyway, we go back to work. And um, in hindsight, by the way, would it, would it have been better if they were tackle bags or something? <laughs> well, it, no, because a tackle bag will actually fall over, <laughs> yeah, whereas right. the tree's okay. a pretty good tackler. You, know? <laughs> yeah, fair, you don't have fair. a choice. You hit a tree at full pace, it's going to... I suppose that's the price you're prepared that, to pay. Well, no, it's not the price. Right. So, oh. yeah, no. So what happens is I go back to work and you know, Dad says, how's it going? Never goes. No, he's no good. So you know, I go back. I go back every single night. It's like it's like they thought you were deaf or yeah, something. Exactly, exactly. So I go back every single night for like six months until I can run through those trees at a hundred percent. And that Italian try is actually for me just trees. I still see it now. Like if I, I know the angles even now that if I run, I know when I can step. I know when I'll hit the tree. I know when I'm close enough because the interesting thing for me. Because I wasn't fast enough, I needed to leave you on the ground when I beat you, right? Because normally wingers back then were way faster. So anyway, two weeks later, it's sausage day, and Neville turns up with a wild pig that uh, weighs 100 kilos. And Dad says to me, that's the price, and you're not doing it on my time. So I had to break down the pig, make it into sausages and salami oh. in, my, in my lunch hour. How long would that take? Oh, so you get it done in, in oh, an hour. No, it probably, yeah, no, it probably <laughs> took me... It probably took me two hours to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, but I wasn't allowed to do it on Dad's time, so I did it on my lunchtime and then after work. Well, well, <laughs> it was worth it, though, It was eh? worth it, yeah. Worth it. Hell, yeah. Jeez, your dad, what an incredible man. Yeah, he was an amazing man. Yeah, and my mum was too. Yeah, yeah. I heard a story, I don't know if this is true or not, um, so you're 18 years old and John Hart wants you to play for the Auckland B team and your dad yeah. like, like negotiates to get you in the A team instead. Yeah, true story? No, yeah, yeah, true story. So, um you know, I played a game, and, and I think John Graham, may he rest in peace, he was there. And uh, anyway, John Hart contacted me and said, like, he'd like me to come and meet with him. So we're butchers, right? So we used to have those elastic ties. We even got two, <laughs> yeah. we even got two, two new ones, mate, you know. Dad said, we better get dressed up. We're going to Fletcher Challenge. And so I went to Fletcher's and, you know, sixth floor, and we're, we're there, and, and I'm 18, mate, like I'm totally out of my depth and I'm thinking dad is as well you know we sit in the reception and then the secretary said I'll be with you in a minute and you know you want a cup of tea and all that sort of stuff we're just, I'm just shitting myself you know I walk in and John Hart says to my dad you know I'd, I think your son's got some real potential and I'd like him to play for Auckland Bees on, on Saturday in this World 15 game that we're playing and I'm going yes how good is that <laughs> you know I'm going to be playing for the Auckland Bees and dad said my son won't be playing for the Bees and I go I'm looking at him I'm I'm going, Dad, this is John Hart. Like, he's Auckland coach. Like, what are you talking about? And Dad said, um, if he plays for the Bs and he makes a mistake, he'll never be good enough. Mm. If he plays for the A side and he makes a mistake, it's just a mistake. Yeah, so give, good the kid enough, needs another chance sort of thing. If you're yeah. good enough, yeah. play him in the top side. And John Hart went, deal, done. Shit. And that was the, the Auckland side, top yeah. side at that time. Yeah. And then, that must have been intimidating yeah. as fuck turning yeah, up well, for. How's this? This is another dad story. So I am shitting myself, right? I'm about to go to my first training room, right? So you've got Andy Hayden, uh, Joe Stanley, uh, 
Gary Whitten, all the AJ big dogs. Whitten, like, yeah. all the, like man, and uh, I'm shitting myself. Sit down, I'm shitting myself. And he goes, um, kilo ham, kilo bunch, and a kilo saveloys. And I went, what? <laughs> shitting myself. Dad wants me to fill an order, and so I fill the order and I put it. And he said, who's that for? And he said, that's for you. He said, um, take it to training. And at the end of training, you open that up on the table, and they won't give a shit about whether you train well or not. They want you back on Thursday. It's <laughs> so good. How good! So, so good. I train like shit, obviously, because I'm so so nervous. Like <laughs> and... getting a free thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, and I pulled it out after di- after training, and mate, the boys were just hoeing into it. You know, I oh, see you Thursday, JK. But then after a month, Dad came to me and said, boy, if you're not good enough to start training with the ham luncheon and several, <laughs> you can start, I'm going to start taking it out of your wages. So, How yeah. good is that? Yeah, I'm guessing there was no uh, nutritionist back then as well, so uh, lunch and after a session was perfectly fine. Oh, mate, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. So then at the end of, end of your rugby, you had a couple of um, very successful years in the Warriors. You were like the top try scorer one year? Yeah, I had, a great, I had a really great time. I didn't think I was that good at rugby league, to be fair. Um, but it was just this amazing time in my life. I um, I was an amateur, right, playing rugby union and trying to go to Italy and make money. And, and I was probably a little bit – one. I don't have any regrets, but one of the things that happened later on in my career is I probably should have changed position. You know, I was getting a bit tired, a bit grumpy, um, and I needed some extra challenges. And I was just coming out of my mental health and, you know, there's some mm. things that I should have done that I never did. But going to the Warriors was just this new lease of life. I just had an absolute ball. I trained as a professional, got paid as a professional, and it was just this great two years of my life. Um, Can you remember what the money was? This was like t- 2005, 2006, wasn't well, it? Well, I turned it down the first time, yeah. so it was $250,000 back then, which is a lot of money, and I said no. Yeah, especially a lot of money if you haven't been earning much. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I had massive mortgage yeah, at 29 yeah. and had my first kid, and, you know, like, so I would have been finishing rugby with not knowing what I was going to do. and. Mm. I always remember I turned it down. And then every single night before I went to sleep, I'd say, what if? And I remember back then, um, Michael Jordan had gone from basketball to, to softball. That's right, baseball, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And I read an article and um, he said, I don't want to have what if in my life. Mm. I was lying in bed that night and I said to my wife, I don't want to have what if in my life. I don't care if I fail, I'm going to do this. So I rang them back. And they said, oh, I'd love to have you, JK, but the... Price has changed 150 grand now. <laughs> oh no! Oh really? Yeah. That delay cost you a hundred. Yeah, it cost me a big hundred, but it didn't Shit. really matter at the yeah. time because. And then a couple of things happened over the next couple of years. Super League came along, and and, um, and then it really opened up my willingness to keep playing. And then I went to Japan as a rugby player for three years, which was just an amazing time in my mm. life. You know, mm. I don't know why, but I said I'd you know I'd never go and live in Japan. Never say never because it was absolutely amazing. I had this amazing time and finished playing rugby at 35. What a career. It was great fun, man. It was just really, really good. I mean, I I feel very, very fortunate. And this is is one of the things I'm really concerned about, um, you know, and you're passionate about your running. I'm really concerned that we are going... In our schools, we're starting to have academies of this and academies of that and academies of this. And kids are failing at 13 if they don't make the rugby academy, mm. the soccer academy or the running team. That is bullshit. We should be able to play anything because sport is for life. It's only 3% of people who end up being a professional rugby player, rugby league player. Yeah. But if you go to London tomorrow and you join a rugby club, you'll have friends and a job within two days. Mm. You know, As a runner, I bet you you've gone to Madrid and ended up running with a Spanish guy who you never met before and had a 
made some yeah, new that's friends. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It's a great community. Yes, that sense of yeah. That is sport. Sport is not about the professional side of it. Sport is about a way of life, and I think those things are really, really important to maintain as New Zealanders. You know, yeah. it's really interesting. Was it the was it the was it Norway the team that won the most uh, Winter Olympic golds? They don't let you can play whatever you like till you're 18. So I think New Zealand needs to get back to saying that sport, whatever it is, is a way of life. Yeah, it's a good way of looking at it. I mean, um, yeah, I've never been a particularly fast runner or anything, but I but I just love it. And the um, I know it's it's running for me, but I think um, the mental health benefits that anyone can get from any form of movement just you know can't be underestimated. It's massive, right? Well, it's part of my um, it's part of my six pillars. But the interesting thing for me, and this is when I talk about um, so the pressure that's on our youngsters. So, have you ever seen a fat bastard as a photo on the wall of the gym? No, no. Everyone's perfect, right? Yeah, all the men yeah, got abs, absolutely. All the yeah, women right. are perfect. That's bullshit, mm. right? Um, so, I, I, I talk about the most important thing about whatever you do is you just move, right? You love running. I'm walking. I go surfing. You know, it's not about – I say to people, I don't know what to eat. I don't know whether to be a, eat the whole garden, eat a cow – be Julio, Palio, or Julio. I don't know anymore. <laughs> so, if it, I'll just have a packet of chips and a glass of wine yeah. because we've got all this information all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. But um, the most important thing for me is that every single day, I think nutrition is really, really important and you should learn what's best for you. And then I think the other thing that's really important is just to move. If it's running, you know, if it's walking, mm. if it's surfing, or whatever it is, but moving every single day is a mental health exercise. Yeah. I've taken up so much of your time, but I can't thank you enough for sharing, and I know that a lot of people are going to get a lot of uh, good takeaways from this. It's been really good. Like You've, you've, you've done the work, and uh, I, I think I probably can speak safely on behalf of most of New Zealand when I can say thank you um, for everything you've done. You were, you, you were the first one that took the leap of faith. Like you've, you've paved the way for any conversation, I think, that happens in this country around mental health these days. You'd probably downplay that, but you really have. Yeah, well, thank you, but I think back at you because, um, you know, I couldn't help but follow your journey because you were in the public eye, you are very successful, you know, had a very public breakup. but I think both of you came out and spoke about your mental health and, mm. and that journey, and I think that that gives everyone else the permission, right? Mm. Um, and I think if we're in a situation of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, we're fortunate because of the ability that God or whoever you want to believe gave us, we can use that platform to just tell people it's normal. Because we're just normal, right? All right. So, you know, thank you, man, for carrying on the torch. Your turn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, lastly, before we hit stop on this, um, the, the, the next 20 years of your life, what's, what's it looking like? Are you, are you much, uh, much of a goal setter or a planner? No, not really. See what not comes really. your way. Yeah, no, I um, yeah, I want to reach a hundred million people and save a hundred thousand lives with mm. the with with the business that I'm in at the moment called Groove. Um, I think if we can make well being a successful business and that workplaces realise that it's the most important thing they do around productivity and retention of good people, then we will definitely change the world, yeah. right? Because even the most cynical asshole, as a leader, knows that he has to look after the mental health of their people. And then the second thing I want to do is make sure that we educate our tamariki to have a mental health plan for what the world throws at them. And I think it's like English, math and science. We've got to teach our kids that. But I don't think too far ahead. I just try and be the best me today. I, the COVID has been hard on me from a, from a um, I have half my life in Italy. A lot of great friends. I haven't seen my son. 
for a few years, so I'm really buoyant about the world opening and mm. being able to to get out and 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 see the things that I love to do. But really, I don't I don't think too far ahead. I think um, a friend once told me, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the best thing for me is to be great today. Yeah. I've got some got some goals that I'd like to achieve, but don't think too hard about them. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, best of luck for everything. I'm sure it's going to going to work out just great, like everything else has in your life. Cool, and I've just released a nice Pinot Noir that you might enjoy. I made one for my father-in-law. He passed during COVID, and I've released it today. It's a Pinot Noir I made in New Zealand, but it's got a lot of what I think Italian taste would be. What sort of red do you like? You like? Oh, I love my Pinots. Yeah, okay. love my Pinots, but then again, even the heavy ones. I'll never turn down a Malbec or a yeah, yeah. Chianti yeah, yeah, or yeah. a Bordeaux. Yeah, yeah. Here, yeah. <laughs> never oh, met well, a red I didn't like. There you go. I'll get you a bottle. Thanks, JK. Really appreciate everything you do and have done. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.